Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 104, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. This, uh, today we have Scott Harris, the founder and general manager of Catoctin Creek Distillery from Percival, Mar- uh, not Maryland, Virginia, who came up to visit today. Uh, thanks for joining me, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So how far away is, it's about what, a half hour or half so? Half hour, that's right. It's We're just across the uh, Potomac from, uh, from uh, Brunswick, basically. It's amazing how much mental time that river adds to to drive i know everything there seems so much more further away than it is if if you're to go then but in my mind it's like oh it'll take forever to get there yeah i know it feels the same way for us too you know it's it's weird to think like as the crow flies like poolsville is only you know five miles from leesburg and yet nobody ever goes to those two cities all the time you know it's like you're either on the maryland side or you're on the virginia side it's like that uh, invisible line in the river, mm-hmm. huge mental roadblocks. Yeah, definitely. So, um, let's talk about first about you. What um, what did you do before you decided to open the distillery? So I was a computer guy. So I graduated from Georgia Tech, um, and I worked in uh, telecom and uh, government contracting for a long time. So one of the first jobs I had when I was graduating in the early '90s was. Uh, working for a phone company that did uh, software for what we now call 911. So basically, you know, in the early 90s, you know, the ability to dial a number and have medical information and address information pop up on a screen for a first responder, like that's what, that was new. And, and I was helping work on a system okay. to design that. So it was kind of cool and productive. And uh, I worked for that company for a long time and I'm mostly focused on um, broadband technology, so you know fiber optics, what we today would call FiOS, right? We were doing early development on that. Um, broadband modems, which is now you know Comcast Xfinity, and uh, DSL, which has kind of gone by the wayside, but it's like your Verizon, you know, DSL line to your house, um, all that stuff. And then in the, I would say like 2001, you know, living here in Virginia, the the market was crashing. You know, telecom business was going under. And so I transitioned into government contracting like three months before 9-11. And uh, so I was working for the U.S. Navy doing, you know, classified security stuff for the Navy. And, uh, again, that felt very productive, you know, especially after 9-11. There was a lot of, um, you know, doing work that was saving people's lives. And, um, and then, you know, as I started to get older and I started to approach 40, you know, so this was around 2008-ish, um, I started having uh, – you know, just a real midlife crisis. And like, man, I do not want to sit in a room typing on this keyboard for the rest of my life. That sounds so familiar. (laughs) So, you know, basically, I started to think about, you know, well, what's my exit plan? What am I going to do? Like, you know, this dialogue running in your head with your alter ego, right? Well, you know, well, you got to be responsible, you got kids in school, what are you going to do? And so the answer is, well, I don't know, I used to work in a winery, I like doing that, you know, and it's like, well, there's, you know, 50 wineries in Loudoun County. And I'm like, well, I like whiskey, you know. And so basically I brought this idea of starting a whiskey distillery up to Becky, my wife. And um, she's a chemical engineer. So she had worked for years in manufacturing industry. So making computer parts, making um, the styrofoam containers that you take home food from the restaurant in, um, making contact lenses and things like that. And 
as a chemical engineer, I was like, you know, hey, you'd make a great distiller. Why don't we start this business together? So much of it is chemistry. Totally, totally. And she, I mean, she runs all of our production operations um, because of her background. And uh, the miracle really for us was that she said yes, you know, that she was willing (laughs) to give it a try, you know, and basically the business plan. So maybe she had a touch of the midlife crisis also? Yeah, she was definitely (laughs) looking for a change, you know. And so, you know, I think the the business plan at the time was, you know, let's take all this money that we saved. You know, we weren't wealthy people. We didn't have any inheritance or anything. And uh, let's take all the money we saved for 20 years of working as engineers and plow it into this business and see if we can make it go. It was a big, scary move. I um I worked as a government contractor for a little while also. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my job was much less fulfilling. <laughs> I uh, monitored Census Bureau uh, servers oh, man. For, uh, for a while overnight, and it was miserable. Yeah, and I, it, you know, there's a, I was useless. There are some really good jobs out there, but you know, and, and I think maybe it's just part of the human condition. Like after 20 years in a certain industry. Like you just, I just wanted some change. I wanted to work yeah. with my hands. I wanted to do something that I could make, you know, and and produce and see it on a shelf somewhere, and and something more than just PowerPoint charts for the rest of my life. Yeah, there is definitely some very satisfying to having a tangible mm-hmm. product that you've created. Right. I think a lot of brewers can really appreciate this too. You know, once you have done the work of like the mash, right? You've 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 spent all day cooking something, you know, in a pot, right? And then at the end of the day, you've now transferred it to the fermenter and put it to bed, right? You're like, the weekend is mine. Like, (laughs) I have done my work, and now the work is done, and this will take care of itself and ferment, and I can go home tonight, you know, and have a good beer or something like that. So that's kind of, you know, it's kind of gratifying to close out a work week after, you know, a pretty hard, you know, type of job. And what you're making is very enjoyable. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Um... So in 2008, what was the, I guess, like the legal climate for opening the distillery? Because the vast majority of craft distilleries in this area, I'm not very familiar with um, later. Virginia's yeah, laws. Yeah. but Because um, Vir- Virginia seems to have even fewer distilleries than Maryland yeah, has. Yeah, Virginia's tough. It's a tough state to be in. So um, set the stage, like 2008, 2009, we, we started the company in 2009, February of 2009. So we're coming up on our 10th anniversary next year. And when we were doing that, you know, the words that were dominating the headlines were things like Lehman Brothers, too big to fail. All of that stuff was happening, right? So fi- financial environment was like, you know, apocalyptic. That's why right? I didn't even think about that. How did you get any kind of financing? Exactly. <laughs> so, so that was our second big miracle, right? The first was Becky saying yes, and the second one was, and she was kind of sly about it. She was like, you know, well, why don't you take your business plan to the bank and and get some financing? And I think she entirely thought, you know, the bank is going to say no. Of yeah. course, the bank is going to say no, right? And um, and then she will have been the supportive, loving spouse. And now, get over your midlife crisis. Yeah. Go back to work, and let's get our kids. We fed. can unify against the banks being right. the bad guy God, for squashing those guys. your dreams. <laughs> and and the miracle, the second miracle for us was the bank said yes. And so, it, with no experience, twenty five pages of business plan on paper, they gave us a quarter million dollar loan for starting our business. And you know, I still today can't understand why they did it. But so maybe it was an underwriter who hadn't been watching the news? or <laughs> You know what? They, the, what they told us is that they stress tested the business plan and it was just really tight. And, you know, thank God. I mean, so, you know, we were able to get started. And that was a moment where we were like, you know, holy crap, now we have this money. We have to do this. Like, yeah. we're bound. Um, now, the, the legal environment, the regulatory environment um, – it was actually I was I was government contractor, so I was 
you know, very well prepared for putting together the license packet with the feds. Um, you know, everything, it's, you dot all the I's, you cross all the T's, you leave nothing out, right? And so when they ask for all these things, a lot of times where people get into trouble, it's like, well, how dare they ask for my bank records, you know? And it's like, well, that's not your choice. If you, yeah. you know, getting a license is not a, a right, it's a privilege. And so, you yeah, know. If there's a question asked, they want it answered to a T, not right. what you think they're asking right. or a right. vague answer. Right. And as a government contractor, you, you know how to answer questions when the government asks questions. Um, and so, you know, my, our packet was pretty tight. So that went actually really easily. And from a locality perspective, um, most of the zoning and fire marshals and things like that didn't know what we were. And so we got relatively easy approval at the time. It was actually harder to get approval for our move in 2013 than when we started in 2009. Um, and uh, the biggest thing that we struggled with was getting zoning approval. Um, at first, we wanted to be located out in the county, you know, kind of a setting similar to like old 690, you know, a little thing with some land, you know, a nice building, um, just kind of the same environment like you see a lot of the wineries. And um, and the county looked at our business and, and they said, well, that's industrial. You're going to have to go down to Dulles Airport area and, and put it there. And we're like, we're not industrial. We're ag. You know, we see farmers every single day. They bring us grain and we give them spent mash for yeah. their cows. And we need to be near the farms. And they're like, no, you're industrial. And so the, <laughs> the, the thing... I don't that, care what you think. <laughs> right. And um, the... the the uh, the thing that the um, that really worked for us though was that the town of Percival, whose town zoning trumps county zoning, said, "Well, we see the tourism potential in this business. We want you in town, and we will approve it." And they actually had to change some laws because there were still some prohibition era laws in the town ordinances that said no distilleries in town. Period. And so they got that law changed. And when they did, you know, there was a town council meeting. It was on a Wednesday or something, and the only two people in the room as the audience were myself and my banker and they, <laughs> we both wanted to see this go through yeah. and that was a green light and we that's why we're in town of percival today oh, that's nice uh so it's always been has it been legal then in virginia for distilleries to operate for a long time uh, for or? the for the most part yes i mean so like a smith bowman and laird's have been in virginia since prohibition right um i don't know about bowman but it's been a long time for them and laird's since prohibition um it's been legal but there's no craft carve out, right? And so, okay. so there's no um, special privileges. Um, like in the wineries and the breweries, there's basically a right to exist. So you can trump any zoning issue um, and say, I have a right, I'm a farmer, I have a right to put my business in this, ta- in this county. And the county people can't fight you on it. Um, but we don't have the laws for beer. The laws for wine are totally different from the laws for whiskey. And, uh, so we, we have much stricter things that we have to abide by. Okay. Yeah. And so that make, that makes sense why there's so, so few, so few. Right. And, when we started, there were six and today there's 60. So there has been a big growth. Um, but it's still a very restrictive environment. You look at, um, in Loudoun County, there's 50 wineries. There's probably 50 breweries now. There's two distilleries. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. And like, that, it's that's it's why there's a reason. Crazy that there's only two. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason. It's hard, and the state um, takes its fair share of everything we do. So um, when we uh, sell in our tasting room, um, you know, first of all, we're limited in our pours. So unlike a brewery or a winery, we have you can get four half ounce pours, and that's it. And then you have to go home, and we can't pour anymore. So it's really not a pub environment. People yeah. expect it to be where they can come in and drink and enjoy all day, but we can't do that. It's not allowed. Um, and then the second big hindrance for us in the tasting room 
is that uh, the state takes 55% of all revenue from the tasting room. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So if we, <laughs> if we sell a million dollars in the tasting room, the state has taken 550000 of that million. So that's a tough business. You know, when you think about um, somebody so who can So why you open come, in Virginia? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it is our home. We love it. And yeah. we live in Percival, half a mile from the distillery. Um, it could have been easier elsewhere. But um, I sort of take a long view, and we've been working very collaboratively with the ABC, actually. And every year, we just try to get it a little bit more modernized, you know, modernizing these old laws. And, and, and slowly but surely, we're making progress on that. So where are most of those other 60 of the 60 distilleries? Are they all further south? Yeah, or? we're the northernmost distillery in Virginia, which is kind of cool little stat. Um, most of them, you could, you know, put a lot of them down near Charlotte. Uh, I'm sorry, Charlottesville. Um, Richmond, there's a few. Um, there's a couple out in you know the Norfolk area, okay. and a couple up and down the spine on 81. Isn't it, is it just that those um, the counties down there are more friendly to distilleries, no, or think, is it just that's where they you ended know up Virginia is a very big state, right? I mean, people don't realize how big it is. It's about half the size of Texas. It is silly big because there's so many times. Like I think like. I'll see something like, oh, I want to go to Ri- like Richmond for this, and then I'll look and like it's like three hours. I, yeah, I always forget like yeah. Richmond's forever away. Right, and I mean like my parents live in Charlotte, North Carolina, right, and so we drive all the way down eighty one. It's like seven hours till you leave Virginia. You know, yeah. it's, it's huge. Well, that was uh, this, then there was because there was in something in Roanoke. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go that I thought I would go to while I was in Richmond. Right, and I looked and like, how can it be another four hours right. away? Exactly, to, it's like being in California right. where it's. A, day to get to someplace else. Right. And so that's kind of the, you know, it's a big state. And I think that's why, you know, we have the space to um, have, you know, 60 distilleries pretty spread out. Yeah. Because um, I mean, we have, what, four? Four in Frederick. Right. Right. And three right in the city. So right. It, 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 it surprised me once I started paying attention, mm-hmm. more attention to Loudoun County, yeah. how few distilleries there yeah. were. And then I was also surprised, like, how many breweries they had. I didn't realize there were so many. We have, like, we have six breweries in Percival. It's a town of 18, or uh, 8,000 people. It's insane. It's a lot of thirsty people in that yeah. <laughs> one area. Yeah. Um, so we're going to take a real quick break to uh, thank Roast House Pub for their continued support of the Uncapped podcast, that we would not be able to continue to do this without them. Um, and actually, one of your... Uh, someone in your area is going to be competing tomorrow in their spaghetti dinner contest where they they used to have the breweries bring their own uh, it's mom's spaghetti dinner that they call it um their recipes but apparently some people didn't like the idea of their mom's recipes losing <laughs> so now it now it's just a battle between two breweries they they have um i think three beers each on tap at roast house pub and then at the end of the night, the people there vote on which beer lineup they liked best. So Vanish yep. is uh, the returning champion for uh, the Mom's Spaghetti Dinner Night. And uh, Duclaw is battling them uh, to see if they can dethrone them. And then next month, um, they're... Every month, Roast House Pub has this amazing uh, beer dinner, and they've done one uh, cocktail once. You should talk to him about that. I will, yeah. He does a five-course meal paired with uh, beer uh, for that one. It was a beer and spirit mixtures. He did some beer cocktails sweet, and then sweet. Uh, did a, a combination of beer or a spirit combination. Uh, but in October is the 
often anticipated Halloween special where your neighbor, Adroid Theory, mm -hmm. comes every month. So I mean, fitting right into their motif. Yeah. Nobody's um, more appropriate for Halloween yeah. than those guys. And uh, Chef Nico does not uh, pull any punches with that dinner. I think last year there were crickets, um, grasshoppers, and just an array of things that sound absolutely repulsive, but somehow he makes them absolutely delicious. It's kind of fun. Uh, so everyone, I highly recommend keeping your eyes out for when the tickets to that dinner go on sale because it sells out. Um, so once again, thank you, Chef Nico and Roast House Pub for your support. But yeah, I mean, he's the, uh, absolutely, Android Theory is the right person totally. to have for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've done a few collaborations with those guys. They're they're really cool. Yeah, we had um, we had them on probably about three weeks, three or four weeks ago. Now at this point, that was an interesting episode. Did you see um, the latest issue of Uncapped? No, yet? I haven't seen it. Yet. Uh, so when we were interviewing him, he just made this one comment that um, I latched onto, where he said that we we were asking him about weird ingredients he uses in beers. And he said, I'd put hot dogs in beer if I had to. Like, and that just like was burned into my head. So we got some of his glassware, took a hot dog, put it in there and filled it up with beer. And so there's that quote and a hot dog shoved in, shoved in, in, the, the beer. in a beer <laughs> on the cover of it. Um, there were people here that hated that idea, but so far I've only heard good things that people thought it was funny. So yeah. I think we made the right decision. Absolutely. So... I guess at this point you've been you have the luxury too now of your craft distillery that's been around long enough that you have a steady stream of aged product. Right. So whereas like especially in Maryland where it's newly legal, mm -hmm. um, everyone's just now only releasing their two year right. aged spirits. You have, I assume, ten year aged stuff that'll yeah, be not coming quite out. ten, but close to it. Yeah. The um, you know, it's it's interesting because, I mean, we started with whiskey right from the start. Like, that was the product that Virginia ABC said they would buy. And so the first stuff we were putting out was brown, but it was, um, you know, a month and a half old. You look at the yeah. old labels on the back, and it's like 1.5 months, you know. It's like, <laughs> wow, really young. But it was brown, and it tasted good, and, you know, it was good enough to get us started. Um, white whiskey was never really a very viable product for us. You know, it's just we had a very good white whiskey. It won a lot of awards, but it's a tough category. And uh, people buy a bottle out of curiosity, but usually not a, a second bottle or third yeah. bottle. Um, and so for us, whiskey was really all about everything we wanted to make and everything we wanted to do. And um, we've also, since the beginning, been making brandy. You know, we have all these wineries around us, and I, I used to – you know, work in a winery. And so working with winemakers, that process, we enjoyed that. And so we incorporated that into our business as well, doing uh, brandy. And um, and so some of the things that we have coming out for our 10th anniversary in February are going to be really exciting. Um, we'll have our four-year-old Rabble Rouser, which is our bottled and bond whiskey. Um, it's a it's a older version of the product that we are our big flagship brand, which is Roundstone Rye. Okay. Um, the Rabble Rouser is much more assertive and, and boisterous. You know, it's a really fun whiskey. Um, and then we also have some cool bottled and bond brandies coming out in February as well. Um, what we call our 1757 brandy, which is the year that Loudoun County was founded. And um, our uh, brandy coming out in uh, February then would be eight years old. So that's some of the oldest stuff we've ever made. Oh, wow. 
Um, I just realized we've made it like 20 minutes in and we haven't tried anything yet. <laughs> I, I feel like that is, um, uh, yeah, like we need to remedy that. Yeah, let's, I'll start pouring. I'll start with the uh, 80 proof Roundstone Rye. The Roundstone Rye, this one actually, we just this week received word that we won a double gold in the New York World Wine and Spirits Competition. So we're super proud of that. Yeah, I was going to bring, bring that up. You, um, you actually won quite a few medals at that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. All four of these guys that I brought today won uh, silvers or gold, double gold for that. The double gold we're really proud of because, you know, that means every single judge that tasted it said it was a gold. So that's really cool. And that was one thing I, I found interesting with um, uh, spirit competitions where you're not uh, judged against the competition. You're you're judged on the merits of it. So right, like, right. And the if, flaws and the characteristics yeah. that it should have as sort of like a dog show competition, right? So they say, this is a pug. And what is a pug supposed to look like for the kennel club definition? Not mine. <laughs> mine either. <laughs> um, the, uh, are you a pug owner? Yeah. Me too. Um, but yeah, the, He's really old and he's, he's, he's rough. Yeah, so is ours. <laughs> um, the, uh, but the, the, the thing I think is beneficial about the spirits competitions is that they are judging these things blindly, right? So all of the preconceptions of age and, you know, what if it's from Kentucky or not, or who the master distiller is, go by the wayside, and they just taste the juice for what the juice is. Um, and so this Roundstone Rye is about two years old. It is our um, purposefully made youthful spirit. So um, because it's a youthful spirit, a two-year-old whiskey, it's a grain-forward whiskey. So often the flavor of the grain itself is lost a long time in the barrel. And so this one, Becky is really striving for a nice balance between the wood and the whiskey itself, right? So you can taste the rye. I was going to say the, the rye is very forward in this one. Right. You can really get the... Right. And, and, and why not, right? Yeah. It's a pleasurable, smooth, easy-drinking rye. At 80 proof, it is very smooth and very easy. Uh, Becky would call this her front porch sipper, right? This is just, you, you know, you don't need a rock. If you want a rock, that's great, but you can just sit on your front porch in the swing and, and enjoy this one. Yeah, and you're right. It is ridiculously smooth, and I, I do like the amount of rye you pick up because I love mm. I, rye anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because when we first started the company, you know, um, people would tell us, well, that doesn't taste like rye. And, you know, we were actually a little bit offended by that. We're like, well, what do you mean? It's 100% rye. How can it not taste like rye? <laughs> you couldn't and, get any more in there. <laughs> right. And and it's it's um, what we realized is that, you know, of course, 80% of the ryes that were on the shelf, and even today, um, are all made in one plant in Indiana, right? And so even though you see these different labels, these different bottles, people are like, oh, well, that must be what rye tastes like. And so a lot of the adjectives or the nouns that people are using to describe them are things like dill or um, grassy and things like that. And that's a flavor that's not in this whiskey. You know, it tastes like rye. You can taste the spice of it from the rye, but you're not getting dill and you're not getting yeah. that green vegetal kind of flavor. And for us, what we would say is this is more sort of fruity nutty is kind of the profile on that. Yeah, I took a whiskey making class at McClintock mm. and they had um, on one part of it, they projected up. I can't remember what magazine it was from, but it, it shows like the family tree mm. of yeah. Yeah. where the juice is made. I think made. that's GQ. And yeah, yeah, that's where it was yeah. from. Yeah. It, so it had yeah. like the trunk of the, mm -hmm. this juice is made used by 
these 20 big exactly. name uh, right. brands and, and it's really just the barrel aging that and, makes a difference. And there's nothing to say there's anything wrong with that, right? There's a lot of judgment in things like this. And and the the whiskey in those bottles is very, very good. What what we always strive for is transparency, right? If you're making whiskey in somebody else's bottles, or you, you should be transparent about it. And there were some that haven't been, and that's a little skivvy, I think. You know, they need to be a little more honest. Yeah, that was one of the I – and mean, because it was – it hasn't even maybe like a year and a half that I started um, paying any attention, even trying spirits. I used to have to give the disclaimer to every guest that if I made an awful face, it wasn't indicative <laughs> of their product. It was because I don't like um, spirits. Uh, but it turns out I do. I just like good spirits. Good spirits, right. <laughs> and so as I started learning more about everything, that was one of the things I was shocked by is that like not everyone makes their own product. Right, I think right. so many places just you buy pre-made right. juice and then and put then in bottle it. And, right, or or buy them yeah, buy them yeah. in the barrels and just bottle it. You know, and our our attitude on that was, look, you know, I didn't quit a perfectly good day job to bottle somebody else's yeah. whiskey. Right, we wanted to make whiskey and make it ourselves, and that's what we do from grain to bottle every single day. So. There's got to be like next to no personal satisfaction when like all you did was pour something. well i mean the personal satisfaction comes from the money rolling into your wallet it's, yeah, a, it's that, an easier business yeah, plan true. to have right and <laughs> we don't have that money rolling into our wallet so you know part of me says i'm a fool for doing it the hard way but you know but we, we want to do this this is what we do so yeah. you know but how, i mean that would be boring though probably There's, probably money only makes you so happy and, and there's certain compromises right so, so a lot of the people doing it are like well this is how we're going to get started until we get our own juice online and I think one of the challenges with that business plan is you become sort of addicted to the cheap crack of the cheaper liquid that you can buy and yeah. then put in a barrel. When you start doing it from grain to glass, it is very, very difficult from a business plan perspective. You've got to run a tight ship to keep things um, profitable. That's a, it's surprising that you can buy a finished product cheaper than yep. – being able to make it yourself. Well, it's all economies of scale, right? Because they're making so much. Because they're making so much. Yeah. Whoa. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> MGP is a huge factory, right? And so, uh, you know, they can make stuff for nickels. And, and, and for us, it's dollars, you know. So the, the scale there, you know, we will never be able to compete on price with that. But we, we like to think they can't compete on quality. Like this is a quality whiskey that, you know, is winning these amazing medals for a reason. What kind of still do you have? We have two copper pot stills. So they're German stills. They are uh, what we would consider hybrid pot column stills. So it's basic pot still with a small column on top that we can adjust for okay. what we're making. Um, the second spirit, just to tell you, tee up what we're, we're pouring right now, is our Roundstone Rye 92 proof distiller's edition. So the distiller's edition, as I pan across the screen here, um, is basically Becky's sort of distiller's cut. So what happens in this process, all of these whiskeys are single barrel whiskeys, which means every single bottle came from one barrel. We don't cross blend to get uniformity. So to get uniformity, right, we want that because restaurants need a consistent product. Yeah. Um, what we're doing is when we take samples from the barrel before bottling, Becky will taste it around the, the members of the production staff, predominantly women. And they will decide, you know, what it tastes like. And if it's smooth and sweet and buttery, it's going to be this 80-proof product that you tasted first. But every now and then, about one barrel in 10 shows up really spicy and aggressive. And so when she finds those barrels, she will bottle those at a higher proof at 92 proof. 
and that becomes her distiller's edition. So it's a higher proof whiskey that's nice in cocktails. It's also nice if you're like the whiskey drinking whiskey person, you know. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I can't. Um, I'm having trouble coming up with the right phrase to use that. But it's like an assault on your senses, not in a bad way. Right. Like it's, it's, more having, yeah, it's more assertive. It's more assertive, right? It's got you know hair on its chest. You know, it's <laughs> it's a it's a cool whiskey. Um, it's amazing to think though, it's the same juice going into the barrel, and it's just the differences of the wood and the weather and the location and all those kinds of things. So that that would be, those two could have been from the same batch from the same day. Um, but that one just proofed down a little bit more. Yeah. And just because of the because of the wood. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we find it about one barrel in 10 is, is when we're pulling out of the barrels. And these are barrels that were on the same truck from the same cooperage, you know. So it's kind of cool that it develops differently like that. And that's a uh, – barrel aging is one, one area I want to learn more on. Mm. I, I feel like I've learned a decent amount, but it's so interesting and so – There's so much chemistry happening yeah. there. Yeah, and it, like it's the perfect blend of science and art. Yeah, like totally. the the what I've learned so far has been just fascinating. So what's interesting in this process, a lot of people don't put enough um, importance on some of the things that are the most important for flavor. So, um, you know, one of the most important factors of flavor, first of all, is ingredient selection, right? So not just the grain, but also the yeast, right? Um, as a beer maker or a beer consumer, you know that yeast can change everything, right? Um, so that that is the first thing. So fermentation is where you create all these flavors. And then everybody thinks distillation is the magic where you're pulling the flavors out. Well, really all you're doing is selecting flavor, right? You're extracting what's already there. If you made something crappy, you're extracting something <laughs> crappy from it, right? So garbage in, garbage out. So you're pulling out the flavor that you've made during that fermentation process. Um, and then you have a basic sort of flavor profile that then goes into the barrel and changes again, right? And so you're marrying that flavor about 50-50, you know, with flavors of vanilla and caramel and flan and, you know, toasted nuts and these complex uh, chemicals that you're pulling from the barrel like a tea bag. And I think Graham is, is enjoying the, the second one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're also, there's oxidization that's happening. And that's the argument that people say that, you know, like these little tiny mini barrels are giving you wood, but they're not giving you the oxidization, which yeah. allows it to sort of mellow out and smooth out. And then all those chemical reactions right. that take place only over a certain point of time. Only over time, right. And so that's one reason we use a 30-gallon barrel. It's like it's a smaller size barrel. But it still has enough capacity that you have to have that time element involved in it as well. Um, that and the fact that when we started the company, 30-gallon barrel was the biggest barrel that Becky could move by herself. So <laughs> weighs about 200 pounds. Yeah, they're not light. <laughs> no. So the big ones are like 500 pounds, and there's no way she could have moved those by herself. What is that, like a 53-gallon fi a 50, a 50, a 50 50 barrel is about 500 pounds. Yeah. Are you using those now? Well, for or some products. We use it for the brandy, and we use it for the um, – rabble rouser so one thing I, i've i've always wondered from um the standpoint of aging is it how do you manage that like like what you're going to sell what you're going to leave sitting is there to age longer is it just some as simple as deciding that or? yeah it, well no it's a business decision um so there's the the process decision of you know you've got to know 
what you are going to, how long you're going to age before you put the product in the barrel. So you've got to make something on the still that is appropriate to the level of age. If we okay. took this product off the still, it's a relatively light style of whiskey. If we took this off the still uh, and then aged it for 20 years, you're going to lose everything, right? It's just going to be bitter and tannic and disgusting and it'll taste like, you know, rotten aspirins. Um, so you got to know what's going into the barrel and how long you're going to age that's it. That's a really good description of something that's going to taste awful. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the um, So uh, the Rabble Rouser, we know a priori, you know, how long it's going to be in the barrel. And so we make it appropriate to that. And you let more of the fusel oils come in. You let more of the stuff. So the new make of that tastes undrinkable. You know, the new make of this is, is Mosby Spirit. That's a very delicious white whiskey. But the new make of the Rabble Rouser is oily and, and kind of bitter. And then, but you know that it's going to be in the barrel for a long time, and those elements are going to smoothen out, right? So you've got to know that ahead of time, process-wise. Okay. Now, from a fiscal business standpoint, it's totally, um, you know, about money. Yeah. And so how much do you have? If you have endless reserves of money, um, then you can make whiskey, you know, willy-nilly as much as you want, because once you've put it in the barrel, that's now money, cash, capital, you know, cash flow that is tied up for a long time to come, right? And you can't get it until you sell it. And so you can go out of business just producing whiskey willy-nilly, yeah. right? Um, and so what we've tried to do is estimate- And then if you have it in a, in a rick house that's not very stable and it falls apart, <laughs> then you- <laughs> right. Yeah, right, God forbid. Um, the, uh, the, uh, for us, what we've done is, is we've tried to produce just a little bit more than what we expect our sales to be. And you can't totally predict that. So if you have some surge in sales, you can dip into that. But then we can also pick up production and sort of make up that deficit. Okay. So we try to keep a certain level that's going to be enough to sustain us for a year's worth of sales um, and then a little bit extra. You know, And that way we're growing it, but we're doing it in a way that's not going to bankrupt our company. Okay. So mm. this one I just poured for you. This is our other double gold winner. This is double gold from San Francisco, the, ca- uh, the cask proof. Rye. So this is 58% ABV, full cask strength. It doesn't drink like 58%. It's pretty damn smooth. Pardon it's my smooth, French. but you can yeah. tell it's there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what, what's cool about it, it's not just more alcohol. A lot of times people think cask strength and they just think, ooh, more alcohol. But it's more everything, right? It's concentrated whiskey. It hasn't been diluted into the bottle. And so the wood flavor, the grain flavor, everything is more pronounced. And that's the beauty of cask proof is you get a really rich whiskey. Yeah, and I never thought of it from that standpoint. That I, I whenever I saw stuff as cask proof, I just always thought of it like, okay, that's stronger, right? More alcohol. But I didn't think about it as like Absolutely. the way you proof stuff down is you add water, right. which is diluting. Not only is it diluting the alcohol content, you're right. diluting the flavors, right. and you're right. Everything is just more pronounced. Right. It's a it's like a whiskey concentrate, if you will. Um, and, and the nice thing, people that enjoy a cask proof, that prefer cask proof, usually say that, well, they get to add the water themselves, right? So you can add water, and water does amazing things to it. It opens up, and it, it becomes more aromatic and things like that, but they get to control it. So how would um, this, nor- your average customer, how would they consume this one? The cask proof, I think most average customers are drinking that, you know, neat in some respect. Okay. I, I however, have no 
qualms about doing anything with my whiskey. I made it. I can do what I want, right? So um, Becky jokes, you know, she can put it in Dr. Pepper if she wants to, <laughs> yeah. you know. But um, the uh, so I actually have been known to make Manhattans with the cask proof, and it is a really good Manhattan. Um, but it will mess you up. It's, you know, basically twice as strong as a normal Manhattan. And so you got to, as Becky tells me, I got to respect the juice. So, <laughs> so it's fun. Um, for the longest time it was, it was my wife who was the whiskey drinker. So when we went to Ireland and went to Jameson, mm-hmm. I didn't even want to try it. Really? Um, the only time I did, I had it with, um, ginger ale yeah yeah so and like there were people there that found that to be offensive right, that right I of course pour, pour it on like, well, you, you know it's funny because here you drink it my, <laughs> my first my first visit to a uh scotch distiller and i think some of this is for show for the tourists too you know just like what with what you saw at the jameson you know they were like well how do you like your whiskey and as an american i was like you know a couple ice cubes in it and they're like oh you know <laughs> and it's it, but i think part of that's just for show you know well I, part of their show was um they they selected people from the group the tour group to do it the, the full tasting mm-hmm. and then they had um johnny walker Kimmer, what kind of scotch? Mm-hmm. And then they had Jameson to show the difference between the different regions take right. on whiskey. And when they got to scotch, they're like, does anyone know the proper way to drink scotch? And everyone said no. So they're like, well, you hold it up, check the color, smell it, and then throw it over your shoulder. <laughs> And of course, my wife was just close to drunk enough that she almost did before they like, quickly told her not to. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me of my favorite Scottish joke. Do we have time for a joke? Yeah, we have. A, <laughs> the, this uh, is the internet. There is no, uh, no time. Yeah. The, uh, so t- two Scotsmen uh, are together. Um, let's say McLeod and McGregor. And McGregor is dying. He's on his deathbed. And McLeod uh, is standing by his side giving him comfort. And McGregor says to McLeod, he says, McLeod, I'm not going to be around much longer. Before I go, I got one request for you. McGregor's like, okay, anything you need. And so he says, I want you to take my best bottle of scotch and I want you to um, pour it on my gravestone after I'm gone. So McLeod uh, says, oh, okay, uh, no problem. He says, but do you mind, lad, if I pass it through my kidneys first? (laughs) 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 So anyway, there we go. That's that's my only Scottish joke. (laughs) All right. So that was that, that was, was the cask proof in 2017. That one, yeah. The, so wh- which ones of the did any of these win this last? Yeah. Round? So all of these won at least a silver. Okay. The this last round, the 80 proof won the double gold. In the last go, 2017, in San Francisco, this one won the double gold. So um, we uh, luckily have the uh, the claim to fame as Virginia's most awarded distillery. So if you hit the nice. website, you can see we've got just a scads of awards for these guys. Those are the the two big competitions, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like the GABF of the uh, absolutely the San Francisco the, is probably the, 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 the distilling world. Yeah, totally. The San Francisco one is huge, um, and it's very well respected because it's done in a very method methodological methodical thank you uh, way i'm um, really proud of myself normally <laughs> i'm the person that has to say a word at least 10 times before right. graham yells at me the right way to pronounce it right so um methodical um way and, and that the, the key there is blind tastings but it's also spirits people you know so they're getting people like Derek brown from columbia room to come out and you know taste these spirits people who know what they're doing um the uh new york one it's actually owned by the same people as the san francisco one but the reason they do it in New York is because San Francisco draws a certain set of people, 
you know, because of travel expenses and things. And yeah. New York has a different set. So they get both sort of both coasts there. And I think that's useful. Um, so we enter both of those, not every year, but, you know, every couple of years just to get a fresh look on our spirits. Um, the other big competition that I think is pretty well respected is the uh, Beverage Testing Institute. Um, that's tastings.com. And they basically issue um, metals as well. That's out of Chicago. So that's one that like a lot of retailers, grocery stores, places like that really value those those remarks. And those are probably three of the top ones. There's hundreds of competitions, right? And you could enter all of them. But um, if they're not getting you credibility, then I'm yeah, not then sure what the point is. you're just spending money that yeah. the... It, yeah. It's interesting, like how you pointed out that the, the credibility of the judges, because it's recently I've had a few different places ask me if I was interested in judging their competitions. I was like, look, do you, are you holding a competition that is real? <laughs> like, you, you want right. an actual person that right. can give it's useful hard. feedback? It's, it's hard like, work, too. I, I will respectively decline because yeah. I'm maybe a step above grunting good or bad when it comes to I honestly I don't know how they do it because you know there's like 75 spirits you know that they might taste in a day you know and then they have a week of this that must totally burn them out but what's I took a it was um a couple months long we met once a week I think it was it was two or three months long it was a BJCP um judging class oops and (laughs) and I I mean, that was when I was like, there's no way I could judge anything. Yeah. I, like I listen to these people talk about like when they're tasting the beer and describing it. And I was like, I well, and spirit- I, I tasted, I tasted some bitterness. Right. Kind of <laughs> tasted good. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. The um, tasting spirits is even harder than beer, right? Just because of the higher proof of alcohol, right? That you're going to get numb sooner. Yeah. Uh, even if you're spitting. Right. And, um, so well, especially because that first taste, then your your mouth's just right. mad that you dumped something that right. it doesn't want necessarily want in there. The the um and 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 order matters, right? So if you taste something one two three four five, and then you taste it five four three two one, like your opinion isn't going to be the same yeah. on how you do it. Um, and so the really good experts, like Paul Picult, is a spirits writer out of New York, and he talks about his method, and you know he will dilute it down to twenty percent. Um, so that he can taste a lot of samples and then he'll come to it, he'll smell it for an hour and then come back to it an hour later and smell it again before he even takes a sample. And then over the course of the next two hours, he'll take like three sips or something like that and write notes on everything. And that's for one sample. And, um, so we, Becky actually tries to replicate that process when she's barrel proofing for these guys. Um, but it's, uh, you know, like for the guys in the distillery, we're all a bunch of cavemen, right? And so when we get it and she puts it to 20%, we're like, oh my God, it tastes like dirty dishwater. Right. Yeah. It's like we want to drink at a cask group, but we're not doing something useful. We're just <laughs> drinking whiskey, yeah. you know? And so um, I think that's where she finds her female staff are a little more methodical <laughs> about it. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let me get a next one here pouring out here. This so is here. there. Um, you did these in a certain order. Mm-hmm. Was that purposeful yeah. or was okay? Yeah. So what what order? Like I know how to taste a flight of beer. It's, the, it's how basically you're the to same, the it, same, right? Light to okay. dark. So you start with a Kolsch, or you start with a really light Hefeweizen, or something like that, and you might end up with that big Russian stout, right? Um, so what we, if I started you out with the cast proof right away then you're going to be, you know, like, whoa, and you won't really notice the subtlety of the softer spirit. Mm-hmm. So we start soft and work dark, work harder. Um, and then we end with gin, right? Because it's gin, right? It's just going <laughs> to, it's going to blow you away. So um, gin is the thing that we put at the end. And 
you know, just to talk a little bit about gin. We, we've been making gin since the beginning. But the uh, uh, gin is actually, for us, a byproduct of our whiskey production. So in the traditional Scottish distillation method, which is what we use for whiskey, there's a heads, a hearts, and a tails, right? A beginning, a middle, and an end of the distillation. Well, that end part is a bitter spirit called tails, and that has a lot of fusel oils in it. But it's also got a lot of ethanol, and we don't want to waste it and pour it down the drain. So we will redistill it. And by redistilling it, we can pull out the fusel oils and leave ourselves with a neutral rye base that we then infuse with all of these herbs, juniper, coriander, cinnamon, anise, orange peel. It's basically like making a big herbal tea you bag. you use a lot of anise? Uh, not, a, you... not a lot, but there's a lot that comes out. In yeah. It. It's, um, I mean, I like that. I like I, I'm the weirdo that loves black jelly beans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it does give a – there's a licorice note that definitely is prominent. Yeah, I and like that a lot. Yeah. It, it's like on the there, – there's a flavor on the like the very tail mm-hmm. end that I'm not quite sure what how to identify. That's very pleasant. Yeah, it, it's a neat gin. It's not a London Dry. We didn't want to do something derivative. So um, what we ended up making was essentially – uh, an old Tom style. It's a little sweeter. That rye comes off as very sweet. There's no sugar in there, but it is quite sweet. And the high level of botanical oils and the fact that it's done in a pot still means that it's a really oily gin. It's so it's got a really cool viscous mouthfeel. It's it's slippery and velvety in some ways. I really like this. Yeah, that's, it's neat, it's neat stuff. That's also like two years ago. If anyone would have told me that I would like gin, right. at some point I would have told them to go away. That we, they were we, wrong. we get that every day at the distillery, at the tasting room. You know, people are like, oh, I don't do gin. It's like, come on, man, just taste a little taste. It's not going to kill you. It's like the same alcohol as these guys. You know, just give a little try. That's and really good. People usually end up liking how, it. How did you choose the mixture that of um, so we had the to botanicals? We had to experiment, right? So Becky was doing research on gin recipes, um, and we wanted to do something unique and different. So, you've, you know, it's a bit like recipe creation um, and then trial and error. So we had a five-gallon pot still at home, and we were basically doing small test-run batches um, that were, uh, you know, we, you know, here's the, let's use this ratio of herbs. And, and, you know, the herb ratios are very complicated because like 50% by weight of all the herbs that's in there is juniper, right? As it should be because it's gin. But like you could have like, you know, if you have two pounds of juniper, you might have a half an ounce of orange peel, right? And if you put more, it's going to be really bitter and nasty. And so you, you can't just, you've got to really tweak those things. So we went through 11 different recipes um, to develop this gin. And even after we put it out, the first couple batches, we were still tweaking a little, a little bit. And what's funny is I have all these like one gallon uh, gallo wine containers in my basement of gin number two, gin number seven, you know. <laughs> and for a long time, I was keeping them. And Becky's like, what the hell are you keeping these for? I'm like, I don't know. You know, you're Nostalgia. not, she's like, you're not going to drink it, are you? <laughs> so finally, she made me use it like as insecticide around the house and stuff. It <laughs> smells great, but. Um, Does gin go bad? No, no. All of these spirits, high proof, once you're above 40%. Stay forever. Stay forever, as long as the bottle is well capped. And even some of the, you've seen some of the dusty bottles, you know, from the 1800s. Yeah. And the cork is failing and the level is dropping because of evaporation. There's nothing wrong with the spirit. It's just getting more concentrated and there's evaporation happening. But essentially, if it's properly corked, it'll last for forever. So I know you don't do vodka? We don't. We don't. Yeah. So funny story about that. When we first started the company, I called the Virginia ABC, who was, you know, to be our biggest customer and our first customer. And I was talking to Neil Ann Brown, who's now retired. She's the the lady who used to select every spirit that goes on the shelf in Virginia. And uh, so, you know, I was full of enthusiasm and 
entrepreneurial energy. And so I called her up and I'm like, hey, my name is Scott Harrison. I'm so excited and I'm going to be a distiller <laughs> and I'm going to be in Loudoun County. We're going to make whiskey and all this stuff and it's going to be great. And she interrupts me right in the middle of it because she's just this tired, beleaguered bureaucrat, right? <laughs> Who has to talk to every liquor company on the globe. Yeah. And, um, and she's like, just tell me. You're not going to make another damn vodka. <laughs> and I instantly, I was scratching out of my notebook, zip, no, no, vodka. no vodka. Yeah, that's that's dynamic business planning on the fly right there. It's like, no, ma'am, we're going to make whiskey. And I would never consider <laughs> such an abomination. And this was the period of time when vodka was like jumping the shark, right? There was buttered popcorn vodka and, you know, cupcake vodka. And it was just garbage and and that now has been waning and i think she was at the leading edge of seeing that like we got too much vodka it's taken too much room and nobody's buying your damn jelly bean vodka you know so So do do you um do you think it's harder or easier when you have that one humongous customer that like if you're in a state that hat is regulated such that it all goes through the state. I would say there's good and bad, right? So Virginia ABC, um, we've now had experience with 26 states, so we know what it's like in in both private and control states across the nation, uh, and some European um, business as well. And the uh, Virginia ABC, uh, for a Virginia producer, um, gives certain preferences, as as I think they should, right? It's a Virginia company. We want to spur Virginia business, right? It's a government entity. So if you're going to, you can have the whole argument about whether or not government should be in the business of selling alcohol. That's yeah. a whole different show, perhaps. Um, but the the discussion about, you know, since it's there and it's not going anywhere and that's their charter, then they give preference to Virginia companies. So if a Maryland company wants to come and do vis- business in Virginia, they've got to compete with the big guys, you know, and they've got the same quota requirements to stay on the shelf and the same kind of requirements to get on the shelf. For a Virginia company, it's a little bit less, right? Okay. So you can get on the shelf easier and you can stay on the shelf a little bit easier. That doesn't mean you're guaranteed anything, right? Um, Virginia, you know, told everybody, they're like, stop sending us moonshine. We're not putting your moonshine on the shelf. So stop <laughs> doing it. And everybody was like, well, that's an outrage. You have to. And it's like, no, they don't actually <laughs> yeah. have to. Um, so, you know, in their they've got to make money and sell stuff too. And so their thing is, why should I take off a high producing whiskey that's turning over and making a lot of money and put a white whiskey that's going to collect dust? And so that's the, the, the thing that Virginia ABC deals with. So on that side, they're a very good customer. They pay on time every time. And they are um, really making, a, I think, a really strong effort to um, modernize their stores and and make them up to date and have good selections and things like that where they maybe weren't 15 years ago as good at that um so i think they're doing pretty good we've been in some other states that are really tough to be in um and i won't name them but you know states that neighbor virginia that are really really tough as a control state um and there's corruption and you know there's you can google it and see some of the news that happens in some of these places we've seen none of that in virginia it seems like a very well-run state so we're grateful for that would it be better if it was privatized? Perhaps, but that would be chaos at the beginning. So, you know, we're not generally in favor of chaos. Do you do you think in like starting out it made it a little bit easier or did that make yeah. it harder? No, I agree. It, it 100% made it easier to be in Virginia. Virginia was our first customer and um, every other customer we went to, whether they were private or another state, we're like, well, where else are you? And we could probably say, well, we're in Virginia and here's our numbers and they're pretty good. So like when you came to Maryland, you, you then... I guess you rely on your distributor then yeah, to, absolutely. to get you on shelves mm-hmm. in the stores. That's right. That's right. So we have a distributor in Maryland who also covers D.C. and Delaware for us. 
uh, Prestige Ledroit. And uh, so they sell in Frederick, they sell in Hagerstown, you know, all over. And um, and it's a partnership, right? But it's a business-business partnership instead of a business-government partnership. So, you know, if they make money, we make money, you know, and they if we continue to sell, they keep reordering and things like that. All right, so I noticed you have, um, you have one more little thing there hiding off to the side. Oh, you still saw which, it. <laughs> which, which usually contains something special. Yes, it does. So my little flask here um, is uh, filled with a little sample of our Rabble Rouser. So I thought I'd just oh, let you have a sneak nice. peek at that. So nobody has really tasted this one yet. Just a little tiny touch for you. Um, I like when we get the special. Uh, it's a little. It's a little dark. Don't worry about the dark. That greenish color is from the flask. Okay. Um, I'll drink some too, just to show you it's safe. <laughs> it's been in this flask for maybe a little longer than it should. Uh, that's another question. Is um, how long is it safe to keep spirits in the flask? Well, you know what happens with flasks is like they're welded and there's like seams and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I wouldn't keep it. I, you know what? I'd fill it for the football game, take it to the football game, drink it all, and then empty it and let it dry out. Okay. Maybe rinse it with water. This one's been about two weeks in there, so I apologize for the greenish color. That's not a key feature that we usually go for. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the. Well, maybe it, I noticed there's a uh, four leaf clover on the. The, yeah. on there so maybe it just picked that up it's, it's actually like... <laughs> the, the that is actually a dogwood blossom oh, okay that's our logo it's state of virginia's uh state okay, flower can see without yeah the, um it's got the little central shine. piece which is why everybody you know thinks it's a clover but it's a dogwood so this is the one that just won in new york no 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 this the... is that was that was the that this one. one here okay no this is rabble rouser this is our four-year-old new, okay. bottled and bond coming out in february That's good. That that one, that, and that one like climbs up into your nose. Yeah. That's a hundred <laughs> proof. So it's a little stronger. That is why too. it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really neat, uh, neat stuff. And it's, you know, really rich and delicious and totally different from these guys over here. It, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to share any characteristics right. other than it's alcohol. And, and what's <laughs> funny is it's same grain from the same farms that we farm from every, every, uh, one of these bottles. It's amazing. That, like, the slightest little differences throughout the process mm-hmm. make such a huge difference in the Absolutely. outcome. Yeah. And it w- way more than what you ever would think. Too. Right. Well, you know, and if you think about it, um, you know, for me, I put it in terms of scotch, right? You have probably got what, 200 different brands of scotch on the market today, you know, quite a few, and it's a little bitty country, right? The size of West Virginia. And yet, you know, 200 different scotches all taste completely different, you know, completely yeah. different, right? Little tweaks in the process. And, you know, they all have... Most bad. They all have <laughs> they all have four things in common, right? Grain, water, wood, and uh, yeast. I mean, that's four yeah. ingredients. It's a really simple recipe. And yet you get this infinite variety. And that's the beauty of, I think, distilling is that you get so much variety by just playing with little factors in the process. Yeah, the the um one thing I will never start to like or get past is i do not like peaty tasting mm. things so if, if it's scotch that doesn't have the peat peaty taste to right. it i may like then you it, may but, like it yeah, yeah but the, anything with that peat moss i tell you what flavors, it's, it's a it's an acquired flavor for sure you know, some of those are really smoky um i love them and i've learned to love them and what what you learn is the smoke comes on really early in the process. You know, you get all the smoke on the first few sips and you're like, whoa, smoke, you know. But behind it, like Ardbeg 10-year-old is one of my favorites. 
uh, is a beautiful honeyed, you know, really sweet, lovely whiskey. And, um, and sort of the reason the smoke is there is very traditional. And so I kind of appreciate that as well. You know, it was the only way to make this stuff back in horse and buggy type days, you know, they would literally dry the, they, the, the process is basically they malt the grain, right? Which is germinating it. They spray it with water and let it start to sprout. And then you have to kill it before it consumes all of the sugars in the grain and grows a, a little wheat, you know, thing. And um, so to kill it, you know, they will put it in an oven and, and, and basically, you know, heat it up to kill it. In the non-smoky whiskeys, that's a dry propane type, you know, furnace. But in um, Isla, where it was done, you know, it was peat. That was it. You know, you yeah. don't have, you don't, they don't have trees. Trees haven't been in Scotland for a thousand years. Um, and so they would go get these peat, you know, things from the bog. And then they would use that and they use it in their homes you go into a Scottish traditional Scottish croft, and you know it's smoky, and everybody's probably got emphysema because of this. <laughs> but that acrid, peaty smoke, you know, was what they used to dry the grain, and it, of course, it infused it into the grain, and that's why it tastes smoky. So I, I can I can respect the tradition. It's still gross. You just don't have to like it. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's that's I mean, fine. Like, it, it's it it doesn't hold to just there. I can't stand smoked beers. Like I. Fair enough. It's just not a Fair flavor enough. I enjoy. What about uh, bacon or? Uh, See, that's fine though. It's just in liquids. Yeah, like, smoke in a liquid form. It's, is... it's funny because we had somebody do a bacon infusion of this, like a fat wash of our, of our roundstone rye, and it totally came off like a smoky scotch. It's really cool because it's the same phenols. You know, it's chemistry wise, mm-hmm. phenols are the thing, and uh, and you know, if you were blind tasting, it'd be like, oh, this is some kind of Isla scotch. You know, it's smoky. So, uh, it, it's just a different way of getting phenols in there. That was, it's an interesting story about phenols and the, the chemistry and stuff is I was on a, a tour of a brewery once and they said that that skunk um, flavoring in from a skunked beer is from UV light striking the beer and it's because a hop mo- molecules and hops um, are similar to the musk of a skunk hmm. and but they have an extra tail mm. and it's the UV light that severs that the tail. tail. Yep. And so for the longest time I was like, yeah, whatever. Like mm-hmm. that was a good story to make up. Right. But then we did a podcast with a professor from Mount yep. St. Mary's who teaches chemistry mm-hmm. through brewing. Yep. So of course I'd ask him, he was like, yeah, it's actually true. I'm like that's amazing. There's so much amazing Science chemistry. Awesome. There's so <laughs> much amazing chemistry that happens in these processes. You know, we had a story, um, one of our first distillations in our pot still, um, Barney, um, was a, uh, Barney's the name of the still, um, was a pear brandy, right? So we had some local pear brandy that we put in there, our pear wine that we put in there, and then distilled off the wine and produced pear brandy. And at the end of the day, you basically open up the still, drain it out, and then spray it down with a hose, you know, and go home. And it's kind of steaming, you know, from the heat of the humidity of the pear and everything, and it's, and you go home. The next day we came in, and the entire beautiful copper still was purple, like an amethyst, <laughs> like bright beautiful amethyst color and we're like oh my gosh what happened right and so we we start talking to a chemist on the internet you know you start asking questions and finally we got an answer from a guy in scotland who said that uh you know well what happens is pear has in the seeds there's a chemical called cyanouranic acid and that's common in the seeds and when in contact 
with copper at a low pH, so low pH, 3.5, which is where wine lives, um, it will react with copper and turn it purple. And we were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You have this beautiful yeah. purple still. Nobody has a purple still like ours. Um, and then, like, two or three days later, the, the beautiful purple kind of kind of tarnished to, like, this kind of concrete gray, right? Just not, <laughs> not pretty at all. And so we were like, oh, that stinks. You That's know? much worse. <laughs> yeah, and so we basically, at that point, we were like, well, you know, we'll just polish it back and take it back to the copper color. And every time we polish it, it comes back purple, and then it fades out. Oh, really? Yeah, and That's... so the still continues to want to be purple, so we call them Barney nice. so as a result of that. So I guess it, it's enough of a reaction. It goes it, it's embedded. enough layers yeah, down. it's a few the... whatever molecules deep yeah. in there, yeah. But there's enough of it in there. You can get a little purple patina every now and then on that That's still. That's cool. So even if you come visit, you can see little glints of purple, and that's from so that. So you just need to make some more of that every once in a while, right. and you can exactly. reinvigorate Pur Purple it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was a pretty neat, um, again, cool chemistry at, at work. So do you drink beer at all? I do. I all right. Do. So we normally close out asking, well, actually, first, I, you always have things going on. Mm. Um, so let's do a rundown of what you have coming out soon and what you have coming up. Sure. Some events and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Let me get my, my calendar. Okay. So we have a very rich um, event calendar. Um, September, which is coming to a close finally, it has been Virginia Spirits Month. And um, so we've had just a whole host of events. We typically will do things like dinners and bottling workshops. So in December, we're going to have a distillery dinner where we do a four-course at the distillery. And that's a really nice thing, especially before Christmas. It's kind of a really nice way to kick off the holidays. Um, during Spirits Month, we've been doing a lot of restaurant visits and things like that. Um, and then we do... Uh, through the end of the year, once a month, we are doing bottling workshops so people can come for free and they can bottle whiskey and take home a bottle that they did themselves or two or three or whatever, you know, and they can write on the label and say, hey, grandma, thank you for, oh, cool. you know, whatever and um, do stuff like that. So that's kind of cool. Um, we've got um, a dinner at tomorrow, uh, tonight, actually, at DC Prime, which is a steakhouse in, in Virginia. Um, and then there's bar takeovers at Bravo, and Becky's doing something in Maryland um, at uh, Snifter's Bistro, which is, I think, out near Annapolis kind of area. Um, she's going to meet the meet the distiller so people get to oh, have cool. dinner with her and, have, and meet and discuss. Um, lots of stuff on our website. If you hit the events link on our website, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. So that's what did, did – um do you do any of the distilling, or has Becky? For the most part, it's the... Becky. Yeah, if I behave, she lets me. Um, <laughs> I have I have done distilling, and if she goes on like a week to see her mom or something like that, you know, then I'll I'll kick in and do it. But generally, Does she leave you detailed instructions absolutely. so you don't mess it up. <laughs> absolutely, and then she calls me every three minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, my problem with distilling is it's it's meticulous work, and I have a short attention span, right? And so I start getting into the facebooking of it, yeah, not, not the doing <laughs> of it, documenting it right. instead of, <laughs> and and you're. Your performance can be measured in the the efficiency or the output quantity. So, like Becky can, you know, from one run generate like say fifty six proof gallons of liquor, and I might have thirty four. And she's like, "Oh, good lord!" You know, like <laughs> what were you it's, doing? It's not that it's not good; it's just not as efficient. Like she's getting a better run than I am. Yeah, and a lot of that's from the even from the fermentation 
yeah. side of it too, yeah. right? Yeah, that part's a little bit easier. The distilling really is like meticulous, like coming over every five minutes, tasting it, adjusting okay. system, tasting it, adjusting system. And that's what really separates crafts from some of the industrial ones where it's just an automated kind of 24-hour process. You know, and they just do us. it by time. They it's, it's always do on. the cuts. All, they don't even do cuts. No, it's, it's, it's or... a column still. So they just keep it fired all the time and they keep feeding it input okay. wash. Um, but the, uh, but the, the pot still process, it's a batch process, right? So you put something in, you run it for, you know, nine hours and then it's over and, and you empty it out and redo another batch. Um, and, and so that part of it, the, that's really, I think where the real selection is made to make this a really high end kind of product. Okay. So then we got all that out of the way. Let's, what is your favorite, we'll stay in Virginia. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite Virginia beer or in your top five? In my top five, I, I would definitely start with Adroit. I think Adroit is a great company. We, um, the Dia de los Muertos that they put out is a really rich, I'm, I'm kind of either on the super dark end of the spectrum with beer or the super light end of the spectrum with beer. So I, I like, you know, a really light Kolsch or I like a really heavy, you know, Russian Imperial Stout. Um, I don't much care for uh, super hoppy IPAs. I just it's not my jam. So I usually stick to something less hoppy. I'm kind of a malt head. Um, but the Adroit Theory um, beers are fantastic. Love the guys over at Old Ox. Uh, I love um, drinking. You know, there's so many in Virginia. There are they're really they're really close to each other and right in that and, one that, that little pocket. Yeah, and they're really good. You know, there's a lot of really good beer. Um, in the, in the area. So this is um, a single malt whiskey with mm-hmm. 25% chocolate malt. Oh, wow. And then infused with Meridian and uh, UK Goldings hops. Okay. Put into the gin basket. Sweet. Um, it was aged. So there, it's, it, there's the finished, what will be the finished product sitting in a 30-gallon barrel mm-hmm. that'll be out in whenever it's ready. Right. right. <laughs> and sometime in early... 2020 probably so this is a barrel sample um before it's really no well i have i have a i have a barrel sample flask too but this is um i had a little uh three liter barrel oh cool so this was a month in the three liter gotcha gotcha so this is a preview kind of yes yeah you can really taste the hops come through it's amazing how much this is that was very different taste. You can now. taste the chocolate on the second. Yeah. yeah, the first thing hops and then chocolate comes in. So it is early on it tasted especially right off the still, but even for a while tasting it afterwards, it tasted like uh, chocolate covered banana mm. or chocolate covered yeah, papaya. I believe that. The um the hops come out much more prominently like as you Later. Just said in the beginning now. Well, what's interesting, you know, we've done a couple hopped um single malts one of them with the droit and um what's interesting about it is the new make we didn't detect any hop flavor at all it just tasted like a grain whiskey like it was good but there was no hop there and then for some reason hops seems to blossom in the barrel mm-hmm. and some interaction with the wood and like in our case it turned into lavender and daisies and chamomile i mean it was a really floral kind of thing um, the chocolate is pretty prevalent in this yeah, one too. Yeah, I, I like where this is gone. It's it's very different, but I, it's still it's great. It's, I can't wait to taste the yeah. the finished version of yeah, this. Yeah, no, this is really fun. That's the great thing about craft, and the great thing about whether it's beer or whiskey is you know, viva la difference, right? I mean, it's like 
why should everything taste the same? Yeah. People, the traditionalists will come at you with, well, you're not doing it the traditional way. It's like, well, you already have that. Let me try something yeah. different. Right? Why not? If you don't like it, you don't have to drink it. But, you know, let's innovate. Let's try something new. And that's what I, I love. I mean, brewers have been doing that for quite some time now, mm. just throwing out style books and doing whatever they want. Right. That seems to be a fairly new trend in spirits. Totally, totally. And and then even now in the wine world, which I'm completely oblivious to, right? Um, th- there's a few wineries that seem to be on the cutting edge of mm-hmm. throwing out those traditions right. and trying new things. Well, you know, it, it, it's a couple of interesting points because the um, like the Reinheitsgebot, you know, for German yeah. beer, right? It's like the purity laws. We're there to keep quality up, right? But now Germans, you know, I was born and raised in Germany, so I have a good window into that culture. And Germans lament the fact that they're missing out on what the Americans have seen. You know, it's this innovation and these cool beers and all this kind of stuff. And, yeah, some of it might be really crazy and some of it might be really gross. But, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that comes out of it that the Germans are just simply not allowed to make. Um, and I think I, that they would abandon that at some point. Yeah, but, you know, uh, again, they're a very rule-following culture. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that they, they sort of revel in it, you know. Um, and, and at the other extreme of that, you know, I think of adroit theory, right? These guys are getting name recognition for being absolutely bonkers in some ways, right? They did, you know, uh, pad thai beer. Yeah. They did uh, beer with uh, that tasted like a Bloody Mary, you know. They, I, I like to think of them as like the Andy Warhol of beer, right? It's crazy, yeah. it's innovative, but they're pushing boundaries, they're uh, you know, they're trying new things and they're getting noticed for it too. So, you know, it's would I have a Rice Krispies beer every weekend after I mow my grass? Probably not. Yeah, but I it's a try cool, it. it's a cool thing to to experiment with and it's pushing boundaries, which I think is a useful endeavor. I agree. Um so is, is there anything else you want to cover or Uh no, I don't think so. You know, about to start a three-week trip to europe to promote spirits over there oh, so awesome so that'll be good um and uh how long did you just get into europe no no you, we've been working on been... the market for five years okay so we have a really nice business in italy um and that was actually something new uh to me um at the time when when our business started to flourish in italy i was kind of like huh that's kind of strange <laughs> like why italy but then i had to realize it and it really hit me after my first trip over there we went into these bars and like since forever, every cocktail bar, half of the ingredients are Italian. You know, vermouth and Campari and, you know, Aperol. All these ingredients are Italian mixers that we're putting with American spirits, right? Yeah. Over there, it's all the home stuff is the mixers. And then they want to bring over American spirits, ah, whiskeys and yeah. gins and vodkas and things. And so it was a, it's always been a natural 50-50 partnership, and I just didn't appreciate it. Um, so we have a really nice business in Italy. Um, I'm going to be in Holland and Germany and uh, the UK as well. So um, all of those markets are pretty important to us. The, how how's the your gin do in the UK? Gin, for the most part, um, it's 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 pretty small. It's okay. pretty small, and just like in America, everybody's got a gin, right? Yeah. And so uh, a lot of places like don't even don't even bring out the bottle, and it's like all right, uh, you know, what we're really known for is the, the whiskey. whiskey. Yeah, and there's a story to tell there. You know, Virginia being a birthplace of American whiskey and things like that, that, that resonates in, in places like Germany and Holland. Um, it's a little more caricatured. You know, they all think we're a bunch of John Wayne cowboys over here. And, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to wear that hat and do yeah. that if I need to, um, to sell whiskey. But, uh, but there is a great appreciation for American craft in Europe, which is uh, kind of cool to know. Well, thank you so much for coming in and uh, bringing your amazing product with you. 
Um, thank you everyone for watching and listening. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.